you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you are new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. It's my joy to welcome you here this morning. You picked a great Sunday to join us because we came, uh, we're coming this morning to the close of our first study guide. How about that in the book of Luke? Uh, next week, we'll have brand new study guides for you. They're not uh, teal. What I don't know what color the last ones were. Uh, but they're kind of like a Tennessee orange, kind of a Texas Longhorn orange. Uh, if you, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just telling you what color they are. Gosh. All right. What, did I do? what happened with the Longhorns this weekend? Something? Jeez. Gosh. You think we were talking about Satan or something here today. <laughs> anyway, those come out next week. Uh, All right, well, we have spent a little bit of time stretching out this part of the book of Luke to look at the three temptations of Jesus Christ. The first one, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus face Satan in the wilderness, hungry after 40 days of fasting and facing that temptation about whether or not God cared about Jesus' physical needs. And we saw Jesus handle that temptation, saying that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then last week, we looked at the temptation from Satan uh, that came with a 4K, high-def, high-res vision of what his future could be. Receive all of the glory, all of the authority, all of the splendor of the entire world and all of its kingdoms. And all you have to do is trade it for worship, that you would trade uh, God's plan, which we know includes pain, suffering, difficulty, misunderstanding, torture, execution, to receive from God's hand all the kingdoms of the world. And we saw Jesus handle that one as well. Well, this week uh, we look at, in Luke, what is Luke's third temptation, and in Matthew it's his second one. Uh, but I think this one is arguably... Not that we're trying to compare necessarily. I think this one arguably is probably the most difficult to understand, uh, the most difficult one to untangle. Uh, Last week we looked at how Satan uh, tells Jesus a story. He gives him a visual, a commercial, and we talked about the fact that Satan is an unreliable narrator. That he presented in front of Jesus this story of glory and wonder and beauty and accomplishment and simply trade it for his worship and avoid all of what is to come. Well, today, uh, the power of this temptation, temptation rests not on a visual temptation, which I think is, is probably a pretty accessible one to all of us. We all see things in life that cause our hearts to react a certain way, or even a temptation about physical desires or the things that we feel or the rights that we think we have. This one has to do with how we see the world. It's a a deeper temptation than merely an object that we may lust or desire over or fear losing control of. It's a temptation really that has to do with how you see yourself, how you see God, how you see life in this sinful world. All of us, like what we talked about last week, we all tell ourselves stories and we all have a tendency to put ourselves right in the center of these stories, of these narratives that we tell ourselves. We all have a way of looking at life where we say, this is how life ought to be. And as you live life believing those narratives, inevitably, with life in a sinful world and 
married to sinful people and raising sinful people and working with sinful people, inevitably, you have a rising conviction in your heart that life not ought to be this way. So not only are we drawn to stories that we feel the tension, the distance between where we are and where we ought to be, but we also have experiences that as we walk through life cause us to realize that this is not how it's supposed to be. And when those experiences of God, or when those experiences get processed at the level of our spiritual lives, there's not one person in this room who hasn't had a conversation with God that goes something like this. God, it's not supposed to be like this. God, where are you? God, you ever ask this one? God, what are you doing? This season, this relationship, this financial difficulty, this vocational challenge, this broken down car, this frustrating parenting situation, this opportunity that passed me by, God, what is it that you are doing? And all of us, no matter who you are, no matter how mature you are, Christians, have you been there? Have you asked God those questions? And what you're going to find in this temptation is that that response that we have, that intuitive impulse in our heart that this ought to be different is incredibly important. It says so much about our spiritual lives. It says so much about who we believe ourselves to be, who we believe God to be. And that cry of our heart of misunderstanding and uncertainty and God, I don't know what's going on is really central to this temptation. Because if you've walked with God for any amount of time, you know the temptation when you are asking those questions to slip very quickly into bitterness. To go through seasons of life where you feel like God got it wrong. And when we come to this temptation, this temptation isn't so much about an object or even a dream. This temptation is really about how you interpret those moments. This temptation is how is about how you interpret the world. How do you see life? And what Jesus is going to give us here is another master class in perspective. So by the end of our time, he's going to dismantle this temptation, cause us to worship, and give us great hope in who he is and the path that he sets us on in our life of faith. So let's pray and get into it. Father, for these few minutes that we look into your word, we look away from ourselves, away from our inability to discern the times and understand what you're doing in our lives, and we set our minds and our hearts on Jesus. We look into this conflict, into this temptation moment, hopeful in who Jesus is and his ability to, to discern right from wrong, truth from error. And Father, we just pause and con confess that he is our great high priest. He is the great hope of our lives. He is the one who can make things clear and plain. And he is the one in whom we put our hope. So Father, from your word this morning, would you teach us and shape us and cause us to be more transformed 
into the image of your son. We pray for your spirit to bring the word of God off the page, for your spirit to apply it to our hearts correctly, to give us discernment and wisdom beyond our years, for us to grow in our affection for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke 4. We're going to flip around a little bit. You're going to want to find Exodus 17 for a little bit later, but we're going to spend some time here in Luke chapter 4 looking at temptation number 3. We're going to start in verse 9. Uh, So if you're taking notes, that's where we're going to be. Luke 4, verse 9. And he took him. This is how the previous temptation started. If you remember, the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness, into a confrontation with Satan. In temptation number 2, the tempter took him to a high mountain. Here in temptation number 3, the, tempta- the tempter takes him to another location. It's a significant location in the Jewish life. It's really the center city of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish world. It's the capital city of Israel. It's Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem has been pretty significant in this story up to this point. Jerusalem was where Zechariah got the uh, encounter, had the encounter in the temple with Gabriel. Then we moved with Joseph and Mary up into the north into the city of Nazareth. But in the, in the recent two chapters here, Jerusalem has been important. And not only Jerusalem, the central city of Israel, but also a very central religious place, which shows up in the remainder of this verse, that he took him not only to Jerusalem, but he also took him and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So not only are we in Israel, but we are in the capital city of Israel, and not only in the capital city of Israel, but we are in the particular religious center of all of Israelite worship. This is where Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to be blessed when he was eight days old. This is where Joseph and Mary would return in their their pilgrimage year by year by year. This was the place where Simeon and Anna gave their prophecies over Jesus as a baby boy. And this is the place where Jesus remained back when his parents returned to their home, saying that he must be in his father's house. So this is a very familiar place in Jesus' upbringing. And when he's placed on the pinnacle of the temple, Uh, commentators in Matthew, when they talk about this, say that this is probably the very highest point of the temple complex. The temple complex is set in a location where the eastern side of it slopes down into the Kidron Valley. And commentators, knowing about the temple structure and its uh, archaeology at this point, they basically would say that this is a spot in Israel and in the temple that would cause people vertigo, it was so high. You're probably 40 stories off the ground. And here's Jesus at the highest point of his father's house, the very place where the word is taught, and he's at the highest, most conspicuous and visible point in the Jewish religious life. So, here is the context for Satan's third temptation. So let's see how he begins. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, this uh, phrase was used in the first temptation in Luke. It wasn't used in the second, but it's brought back here in the third. And to remind you that the, the devil is not questioning the identity of Jesus. In the Greek, the way this word is written or the way this if word is used is as a presumption of truth, a presumption of fact. 
So that Satan is talking to Jesus <clears throat> as if he presumes that Jesus is who he says he is, which has been proved at the end of Luke chapter 3, that he's the descent, uh, he's the son of God by descent through Adam and the son of God by divine affirmation, right? So Satan agrees. He begins with an assumption. And he takes that assumption and what Satan is going to do throughout these temptations is basically assume that Jesus is who he says he is, but the Satan's, I'm sorry, Satan's temptations flow out of an understanding and an application that Jesus ought to be the son of God in a particular way. So Satan takes that title, he takes that right, he takes that identity and says, Jesus, you need to apply your identity in a certain way. Now in the first temptation, how was Jesus to apply his identity? by turning stones to bread. So we have a similar temptation here is that Satan is telling him, we presume and we agree and we assume that you are who you say you are. We believe, we agree even, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. But then what Satan does is he attaches that assumption to an application, which is always suspect in the logic Satan uses, right? There's always an application of Satan's logic that ends poorly. Remember Genesis chapter 3? That when Satan confronted Eve, he led her down the story of his interpretation and his application. But here in this temptation, it's almost a stupid temptation. It's almost a temptation that you would look at and go, well, that's easy. There's nothing to that temptation. Because of what he says next. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, assumption, throw yourself down from here is your application. <clears throat> now, you're smart people. You've read your Bible. And you've even heard your parents at some point say, if all of your friends throw themselves off of a bridge, are you going to do that too. And because you're smart and because you're wise, you look at this temptation and you go, at this point, Satan's over too. He's not even trying now. So the question we have to ask as we hear this temptation come off of the lips of the tempter is how is this tempter going to make a stupid idea look like a plausible idea, right? How in the world is Satan going to take what looks like such an awful application of Jesus being the Son of God and turn it into a temptation? He takes the assumption and the application and he puts them right together. But here's the problem, and this is the problem for all of us, is that all of us have a tendency to assume some things and to make some applications from things. And what we miss is the big gap between my hands right now. What we miss in this giant distance between these two poles, between our assumption and our application, is everything in the middle, which is our interpretation of things. So the question you have is Satan presents this application, particularly connected to Jesus' identity, is why is this a temptation? What is Satan going to say that makes such a ridiculous application of throwing yourself off of a building sound like a great idea. So keep that in the back of your mind.
And the way he does it begins in verse 10. Now, if you've been with us through this series, these four words are not a surprise to you until you read them in 4 verse 10. 4 verse 10 begins like this. For it is written. Now, you should, that should hit you square in the chest. That should make the little baby hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Because those are the exact four words that Jesus has used to dismantle temptation from Satan up to this point. Which tells me something very, very interesting about Satan. This has been our great hope as we've closed all of these temptations, right? This has been the great point of power as Jesus takes the word of God and untangles the tempter's scheme. But as this temptation begins, the four words of for it is written are not in Jesus' mouth. The four words are in Satan's mouth, which tells me that Satan knows his Bible. And that should scare you. Because what Satan is about to do is step into an issue and step into something that you and I do almost intuitively, but he's about to step into a temptation over hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a word that is essentially the theory and application of the interpretation of biblical texts. It's what I attempt to do up here every single week is interpret correctly the word as it has been written. And for all of us, we're all interpreting beings. You make interpretations all the time. Have you ever been in a conversation or a conflict with somebody where inevitably one of you says in the midst of that conflict, that's not what I meant. Then you understand the power of interpretation. You interpret your life by how the weather is, how the traffic patterns go. You interpret nonverbal cues, body language, tone of voice, recent past history. No matter who you are, you're always doing interpretive work. We're always making assumptions and that result in applications because we're all making interpretive choices. And what Satan is about to show us here is really we know this going in. We know that now as Satan quotes, for it is written, we know that Satan knows the Bible. In fact, Jesus has shown us that everything has, has been riding on the fact that his interpretation of the scriptures are the correct one. And Satan, we can presume, I think you will grant me this, that Satan's interpretation of the Bible is the incorrect one. Okay. But when Satan opens this temptation and says, for it is written, it tells me that we need to be very, very careful in reading our Bibles. We need to be very, very careful with the conclusions we arrive at as we read our Bibles because we are inevitably interpreting people. 
and we're arriving at conclusions that we think are based upon proper interpretation of the Bible. So what I'm going to show you here is that as we seek God's word, and as we take God's word and day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year read through God's word, we need to be practiced at interpreting correctly. See, the Bible is not given to us like an encyclopedia or like Wikipedia that just merely repeats spiritual facts for us. It's not like the owner's manual to your stove that you know it has information in there that's important to operating this, but do you ever look at the, the owner's manual for your stove? Say no. No, you never do. Where's mine? In a stack, under some dust, hidden in a closet. Why? Because I got it. I know how a stove works. I don't need the engineer's perspective on the stove. I've worked these things before. I can arrive at the appropriate application on my own. It's a box, makes it hot, cooks the food, turn it off. That's all you need to know about a stove. But when Satan quotes it as written, it tells me that Satan has a perspective by which he evaluates and elucidates and explains the word of God. Genesis 3 is in the back of our mind, right? Where he tells Eve, you will not surely die. Did God actually say? And in similar fashion, here we are with Jesus. So let me ask you, does knowing the word and understanding the word and applying the word matter to the life of a Christian? What do you think? Is there any work that we need to be doing in taking God's word, laying it out in front of us, and meditating diligently on what God has to say to us? So when we open God's word, we don't just open God's word and, you know, that was good, my quiet time is over. Listen, when you sit down with God's word, you, under, you need to understand the adversary of your soul knows the Bible. The one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour knows the Bible. And to sit down and grow into the man or woman that God wants you to be is going to take diligent, focused, interpretive work. I had a mentor say that the fruits of God's word are not yielded to the man who is lazy. And if you are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to grow in the hard work of observation, interpretation, application. I, I had a class with Dr. Howard Hendricks who lived well into his 80s. I had him when he had already lost an eye to cancer and he was this little bitty guy with a fiery personality and he stood up in front of 100 people in a room. He wrote the book, uh, Living by the Book, which was his method and manual of teaching people to read the scriptures. It was the singular class you had to take before you took 
took any other class at Dallas Seminary. And I went into that place listening to this 80-year-old man who's been teaching for twice as long as I'd been alive, waiting to see what he was going to teach us about reading the Bible. And after about three classes, I discovered that all he did for 80 years of his life was observe, interpret, and apply. And then he'd get up on Tuesday and observe, interpret, apply. And he'd wash his soul in the word of God, in the proper exercise of his mental faculties to learn what God was actually saying in his word. So as Satan gets ready to speak to Jesus and to apply God's word, he's going to back it up with scripture, which should make all of us very sober-minded about our spiritual lives. For it is written. So let's see what in God's name, what interpretation is going to make jumping off a building make sense? You ready? Here it is. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Oh, I like that. Verse 11, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's pretty good. That's a name it and claim it kind of promise, isn't it? God's not going to let you fall. God's going to protect you. God is going to leverage his angel armies to make sure that you don't fall and you don't even stub your toe. If you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from here because you are guaranteed to be blessed, protected, and saved by your heavenly Father. How do I know? Because of Psalm 91. Now, let me tell you why this turns into a temptation right here. And let, let me tell you why, generally speaking, Temptations are out there in the mouths of spiritual teachers who take the Bible and quote it and fill up conference halls and book speakers and write books to make money because they do the very same thing that Satan does here. He gives assurances of Jesus' uh, protection. And what, what Satan does, if you have a cross-reference, you know this is from Psalm 91. You probably have that in your Bible somewhere. You can go read that on your own. But what you'll notice here is that all of Psalm 91 is not quoted by Satan, right? Psalm 91 is, you know, go look it up. It's 11, 12, 13 verses, something like that. What Satan does is quote it partially, which is always a good indicator that somebody is not applying the word of God correctly. They take one, two, three verses out of context, build a principle, land on an application. And let me tell you, in my line of work, there's nothing that makes me more angry than people who rip verses out of context to make points that the text don't say that they hamstring the people of God from understanding really what God is saying. Because it's easy to preach if you pull the Bible out of context. <clears throat> uh, Y'all watch football. Apparently you love watching the Texas Longhorns. 
It's good to know, mental note. You've seen the players with the eye black on with the scripture verse, right? What's the scripture verse? Philippians 4.13, right? What's Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that Philippians 4 is talking about the extra point, right? (laughs) That's why they put it on there. Paul in a jail says, I can hit it from 55 yards. (laughs) Philippians 4.13. You laugh, but this is on every mug that you have, every Christian t-shirt you have, because we can't quote all of Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant on a t-shirt. It's bad marketing. What we got to do is take one little bitty thing right out of context, apply it to football, and make sure everybody knows that we're spiritually minded people. What's Philippians 4 about? Being able to handle adversity and being able to handle prosperity. They don't even know it's such a good verse to put on there because he's saying, win or lose, I have the strength. That's not how they use it. They go, God's able to give me strength to win. Nobody ever puts the eye black on and says, God's going to give me the strength to persevere through great difficulty and go in two and ten. Nobody's putting that on their eye black. They all presume victory. So the first thing that Satan does is he quotes it partially. He doesn't give you the whole psalm. He doesn't give you the context. He doesn't give you how Psalm 91 starts about dwelling in the shelter of the Almighty, of being dependent and submissive upon God. He pulls promises out of the scriptures that only pertain to this situation. And number two, what Satan does is he quotes it preferentially. He only quotes the passages that matter to this situation. Don't grow in a holistic biblical theology. Pull out your favorite verses. Memorize them. Put them in your car. Make a t-shirt out of them. And make sure that they apply to you. When you start with the application that you want, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You know that? You can find all sorts of Bible verses to back up your preferences, all sorts of Bible verses to back up your desires, all sorts of of Bible verses to back up oppression, all sorts of Bible verses to back up injustice, all sorts of Bible verses to back up making a lot of money. A wise man leaves his inheritance to his grandchildren. What's that mean? Make a bunch of money. Because unless you leave an inheritance to your grandchildren, you're not doing it right. Is that the application of that proverb? How fast we can move from assumption to application, right? Without patient, diligent, exegesis, and wise interpretation. So Satan quotes it partially, and he quotes it preferentially. So what do you think? Can you force God's hand? Can you back God into a corner with a Bible verse where God goes, Oh man, Jesus is jumping? I gotta get him. Because the guy said this back in Psalm 91. I'm stuck. 
See, the reason now that this temptation becomes plausible is because of interpretation. Because he's pulled the interpretive elements out of a psalm. He's created a scenario and he's backed it up with the word of God. And he's saying the only valid reading of this text, the only valid interpretation of this text is throwing yourself off a building. One commentator in in looking at this temptation says that Satan would have no martyrs. There would be no place because of God's love and God's care and God's compassion where people committed to his cause wouldn't end up with loss of life. So are you seeing the temptation? Are you seeing how Satan is creating a context in which Jesus is at a point where if Satan would say, if you're going to take God's word seriously, if you're really going to live according to the promises of God, if you're really going to say that no man lives but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then why aren't you obeying this one? It's a brilliant temptation. And underneath that temptation, I, I, I know, you know, we read this and we go, I know something's wrong. I, I mean, I know it's Satan. He's probably not quoting the passage correctly. But why is this a temptation? Why is it that our interpretation can be affected, right? Why is it that we can look at the word of God and arrive at two different applications for two different people in two different scenarios? Because I think underneath this temptation, and you'll see this by Jesus' answer, Underneath this temptation exposes the desire that's in all of us that we started with, that we all feel this temptation to confront God on the ways in which he hasn't come through. See, all of us in this room are facing something where we don't know how it's going to work out, right? There's some scenario, there's some difficulty, there's some stressor where you are walking through life and you just don't know how it's going to go. You know you're praying or you may be asking God to come through and asking God to do something, but you, you really don't know. In the next 10 minutes, we don't know how our life is going to go. We don't know if we're going to make it to 80. We don't, we don't know those things about life. And what this temptation reveals, I think in part, is this inherent desire that all of us have in our relationship with God, and that's to be certain that he's there. Because if nothing else, what Satan is saying to Jesus is that you can be sure he's here. And all you have to do is put him in a position where he has to act. And I'll even back it up with a Bible verse. Wouldn't you love more certainty in your walk with God? You know, for the longest time, I've been a Christian for a couple decades now, and in my 20s, I would, I would meet people who, who knew the Lord, who were Christians, and they had an aura about them that was so infuriating to me. And I don't, I don't mean that. This is more a problem in me than anybody else. But I would meet people, and they would, they would come off in their relationship with God as so confident of his intimacy and his love and his protection and his presence in their life. And I'd be back there in the back going like, I don't, I mean, 
I can't work my stove right. I don't, even now, if you were to ask me, Steve, what is God doing in your life? I'd be like, I don't know, there's lots of clover in my yard. I, and I realized that there was this, it would cause me just to be maddened because I would get so mad and infuriated at God of being like, why don't I have more confidence? Why don't I have more awareness as to what's going on? Why isn't there greater experience of your presence and your intimacy and God what you're doing and don't you love me and where are you and what are you doing and I don't know what's going on and there are these people out here who feel like they know they seem to be walking step by step in hand with the Lord and I feel like I'm just walking and I don't know if he's around I don't know if he's here I don't know if he's engaged I don't know if he's saying anything to me I don't have a word from the Lord in this moment to give me great confidence it feel like feels like I'm actually walking by faith and I discover that in the center of my heart I had this kind of personal struggle where it would create anger in my life because I couldn't get God to do what I wanted him to do. You ever try to get an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing being to do what you want? It's like feeding a three-year-old green beans. Yes, I just compared a three-year-old's distaste of green beans to God eternal. It's impossible. God has all the cards. He knows everything from beginning to end. He made me before I was here, had a plan before I was here. I arrived on the scene. I got no idea what he's doing, where he's at, what sense of his presence I'm supposed to have. I'm just supposed to walk by faith. And here Jesus stands on the temple, and this temptation I think is for all of us. What would you give to not have to walk by faith? What would you give to know that day by day and hour by hour he was with you? You could see him, you could hear him, you could walk with him. And the temptation in front of Jesus is the same temptation in front of all of us is to simply walk by faith. Verse 12. And Jesus answered him, it is said. I, wonder, I, know, I don't know why Jesus says it is said. Wouldn't you expect a different Bible verse? Wouldn't you expect it is written again? And it's interesting, just for stylistic reasons, it's, it's, the, it's probably not that this is a, <clears throat> a, kind of, a kind of a common saying in Jesus' day. The similar phrase it is said is used back when uh, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus up to the temple to do for him what is said in the law of the Lord. So it's probably just a stylistic change, but Jesus, the incarnate word of God, speaks to us now the truth that is able to disentangle this painful temptation that we all experience, this painful longing and desire in our heart for certainty. This temptation we all have toward bitterness at God because we don't understand what he's doing, we can't see the end of the story. And Jesus gives us another passage from Deuteronomy. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. And he lands in Deuteronomy 6, which let me just save you the time. It's not helpful because Deuteronomy 6, 16 says, you will, shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. 
which I don't, that doesn't really help unless you understand what happens at Massa. So what happens at Massa is in Exodus chapter 17. Go with me back to Exodus chapter 17 so that you would understand why Jesus would say what he says here. Because it's a very simple response, isn't it? Don't test God. Don't test him. Which must have something to do with how we interpret our life with God. There must be such a visceral and real temptation in our relationship with God that moves from questioning to demanding. From asking to saying, I have a right to know why. And it's in Exodus chapter 17. This is the second provision of water of the people of Israel. They're not, but they're between 45 and 90 days being out of the nation of Egypt. Maybe two months. And if you've read Exodus, you know these folks got problems. They argue with God all the time. A consistent feature of their relationship with God is grumbling. And it shows up in Exodus 17. Look with me at Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, uh, I won't read the whole passage. We'll just land on the end. But essentially, Moses comes to God, says, these people are ready to stone me and kill me. Why did you bring me out? Can you please solve this problem? God says, take the staff that's in your hand and go hit the rock with you and Aaron and the elders, and water will come out. So move down with me to verse 6. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You'll strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Now, the answer that Jesus gives to Satan really rests on what happens at the end of verse 7 right here. We've got a place where the people were arguing and they're doing two things. They're grumbling against God, which is what Meribah means, and Masa, which means, uh, you see at the bottom of your Bible, testing, right? Quarreling and testing. But the remainder of this verse is really the key interpretive uh, moment that helps us understand why Jesus gives this passage. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, something happens in our relationship with God when we have a perspective on the world that demands that God show up. Something happens to our spiritual life when we believe that God owes us an explanation. Something happens in our heart that turns into anger and bitterness and frustration so much so that we will test God and put him in a position where if he doesn't show up, this relationship is over. Have you been there? Have you felt that kind of temptation at the level of your spiritual life? where it's frustrating to walk with God because you can't understand what he's doing, where you have elevated your understanding of God to the level of deity and you demand that God serve your understanding. And here's Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple, knowing that were he to throw himself down, 
God would save him. Because the plan has not been completed yet. And what's Jesus have to do? Jesus has to walk away from the temptation by faith. Because Jesus is going to have to go through the course of his entire earthly ministry by faith. Everything that Jesus does is by faith in his heavenly father. By trusting that his heavenly father has a plan. And he will not put God to the test. He will not demand from God that God prove himself to Jesus. Rather, Jesus will submit himself to his heavenly father. And what Jesus does in this moment is walk away from the pinnacle of the temple by faith. He says, I won't put him to the test. Because our relationship doesn't work like that. He is God and I am not. I submit myself under the hand of God. Now, do you feel that temptation rising in your heart even as we talk about that? Do you feel that temptation that rises to the level of arguing with God? Because that's what the nation of Israel did. They said, is God here or not? Is God for us or not? Can we trust God or not? He better show up on my timetable. He better show up when I say he shows up. He better do what I tell him to do. Because I've got all these verses about providing, all of these verses about protection, all these verses where God is supposed to be holding up his end of the bargain. And Jesus, in meekness and in strength, refuses to take the bait and to walk away from the temptation. Now, what is our hope? Why is it that after God does all the plagues and after God has the people walk through the Red Sea, which if you don't know in the Old Testament is the premier example of God's power and justice, is the Old Sea. I'm the Old Sea. Uh, the, it, the old sea. It's the, it's the Red Sea experience. It's the Red Sea crossing. Everything in your Bible goes back in the Old Testament to that singular event. So how in the world are we going to handle this temptation? And we've ended every week looking at Jesus Christ, right? We've, we've looked at the promises of Hebrews 12, of setting our eyes on Jesus. And the little phrase that keeps coming to mind as I read this temptation is that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. That he not only started the walk of faith, but he completes the walk of faith. And he puts in front of us this example of what it means to trust God because we all have a tendency to mistrust God. Amen? We all have woven into the deepest parts of our hearts this question where we're not quite sure that we can trust him. And this longing for certainty in our spiritual lives, let me give you hope in this, is balanced by the fact that we have the greatest New Testament evidence of his love and care and concern for us in the cross. So as Jesus takes a step away from the pinnacle of the temple, he knows that he's going to have to trust God all the way up and through death put his hand in God's life, or put his life in God's hands, 
and allow God to raise him from the dead as vindication that the life of faith that he displayed was accepted. So when that temptation in your heart rises to the level of demanding, set your eyes on Jesus Christ. Set your eyes on the fact that he went to the cross for you and trusted God the whole way so that you and I would have evidence of God's love and care and compassion for us. By this we know love, the New Testament says. That he died for us and that he is the propitiation for our sins. See, we've got to allow our relationship with God to be defined by God. Because there's no other way to walk by faith. And our great hope in a passage like this is to look at Christ, who is the author, the one who started it, and the one who faithfully completed it. And he is our great hope. Amen? Amen. Father, what great hope we have looking at the person of Christ. What great hope we have in our hero who has dismantled the temptations of Satan himself. And Father, we pause in our demand for certainty that shows up in our life so often. And we look to Christ and what he has done. And we give thanks that in him we have understanding. That in him we have victory. And for all of us in the room who face the temptation toward bitterness and misunderstanding, would you give us the strength as we look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He endured the cross. He scorned the shame that he was faithful to the end. And for that, we give great thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.